From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 447, SQL Q&A at SQL Intersection 2015, with guests Kim Tripp, Paul Randall, and Brent Ozar. Recorded Friday, October 30th, 2015. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks so much for listening to Run As Radio. I'm here in Las Vegas, over on the SQL side of SQL Intersection, hanging with Kim Tripp, Paul Randall, and are you Kim Randall yet? Legally, yes. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And Brent Ozar, and uh, yeah, a big round of applause for that. Yeah, okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We got, yes. we got, we got married own. eight years ago. Eight years ago, oh, yeah. Eight, eight. Yes, that's right. And I almost introduced them as, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. and Mrs. Tripp, but, you know, I didn't do that. <laughs> she said seven. Eight wonderful eight, years. Eight wonderful years. Eight so long, I, I long, have the incredible years. luxury of having a chance to uh, interview and, and chat with my friends, and I'm really excited you guys are all here. We, this is a sequel Q&A session. We'll be publishing this a few weeks from now, so uh, you can see how we clean up this mayhem that we're going to do for the next hour uh, on the recording. And uh, for all those listening... Uh, who knows what's going to happen? On the screen, potential topics. That is to say, a shopping list of all the things we worry about in SQL Server. And uh, we have a group of experts in the front of the room. And Brent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you need water, soda, back rubs, you name it. I, I, my, my favorite part is whatever subject we pick, they'll all, they'll all know who to point to, and yeah. it'll, it'll go from there, and I, I will cause some trouble. But uh, yeah, so if you give me a hand, I will run over to you and say, hi, what's your name? Where are you from? Prabhu. I'm from Fisher Investments in California. Fantastic. And your question for this group of troublemakers? Okay. I have a simple SSS package to transfer data from one database to the other oh, database. David. <laughs> okay, so... Oh, yeah. important services. It's a one simple table transfer, but the source as well as the target has index, like a unique clustered index. Sometimes it fails. Okay, saying duplicate data. Theoretically, the source also has a unique clustered index as well as the target. What could be the possible reason? If, if I ever have betting, I'm always going to bet on bad data every time. Source has, so, has unique clustered index. It could not be bad data. If, if I believe that the query coming out of there was flawless, that the query never had a bad join other to other tables, if I get an error that there's duplicate identi- you know, uh, clustered indexes, I'm kind of betting on that. But. My other question, though, too, is, is it going into an empty table or is it going to an existing table? Because maybe the duplicate is with something that's already there. Uh, no, into an existing. I mean, since it has, it's a kind of a... Ten, every 10 minutes job just to get the delta from source to target. Yeah, see, oh, I'm guessing that the query is, there's something wrong with the query. And too, so I would question like dirty reads too. If yeah, like if there's something there about There is no the lock and the default recovery, um, the database um, is in default recovery mode. Can you... Uh, the isolation is default. The, and is this aspect of your data pump in your data flow? 
Yes, the data flow. Can you send the aired data to another table? Can you change the package to where you can send your errors to another location and you can start looking for patterns? Um, that would be yeah. my, that, and that goes along with what Brent's saying for, for the error, potential errors. Look for mm -hmm. patterns and then you can track down the possible bad feed. Mm -hmm. because, but you want that historic, you want your error data to be historical. Wave the other hand, Davis. Wave the other hand. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can do that, but like every time it's a new set of data, new records, but what I'm looking for, like, is it because of the page splits, for given SQL is trans? You're not, you're not, you need, you, need the, you need trending. Okay. Okay, thanks. But, yep. but you said, is it page splits? No, page splits are never ever going to cause duplicate data violations. No. That's why, I mean, in those lines, is there anything else we have missed? Uh, the first thing I'm looking for is source and time. And do I start looking, do I see patterns? And then you can start questioning where are you getting, you know, who's giving you that feed. Okay, yeah, it's a, just ad hoc. There is no pattern. Every 10 minutes job, sometimes it fails for no reason. Ghosts. Yeah. Yep. Ghosts. But that's one of the, SSIS is kind of good at that workflow bit of saying, oh, absolutely. if you have a problem, direct it over here. Absolutely. And that's the, the, the beauty of it is, is sending your error, sending your paths down to another location. And then you can start creating, creating some reports on your bad data. I know. You're going to have to train me. <laughs> it's like Talladega Night. The hands keep coming up. It's like push the hands yeah. up. <laughs> Mic microphone discipline is an odd skill. Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby. Ricky yeah. Bobby. Yeah. Hands? More questions. Or else oh, we'll just start talking about something. Okay. More questions. So my name's Joe. And so what's the most ingenious way you've seen someone initialize transactional replication? Stone tablet. <laughs> well, you've got three choices. FedEx, right? you've, got, you've got by snapshot, by backup, or there's also initialized by LSN, which many people don't know about. And I wrote a white paper about this. It came out in 2008. And before 2008... What is it? All of you people need some training. Look at you bouncing around. Stop bouncing. Is that interrupting my voice? No, he but it's so excited about replication. Shut up then. He's dancing. This is a replication. Eight, so, eight yeah. wonderful years. Yeah, yeah. Eight wonderful years. <laughs> Can't hold still. Yeah. Um, no, I'm going to bounce if I want to. Dance in your face. Back off, woman. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, before 2008, if you couldn't really mirror a subscription database because there was no way to reinitialize it after a mirroring failover. With initialized by LSN, you can set the distributor's retention time to something like a day, and then after a, a, a mirroring failover of a subscription database, you can look and see what was the last LSN that was replayed into the subscription database. You can then go back to the distributor, create a new subscription where you initialize by LSN of the LSN plus one that was last put into the, the subscription database by looking on the distributor to make sure it's still there. That is probably the most ingenious way. Okay. Sorted. My role is done. I like it. I like it. <laughs> he drops the mic that's clipped to his chest. Yeah. <laughs> wanders out of the I room. So. Yeah. I, there's no way I'm going to win this. No way. Okay. <laughs> I, I Do you have a question? Start, okay. Start the stopwatch. Kim. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll go to Gamble. Filtered <laughs> statistics. Is there any 
penalty for having too many filtered statistics on a table? Start the stopwatch. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the question was, is there any penalty for having too many filtered statistics on a table? And, and simply put, no. And that's, that's the difference between us creating lots of steps through individual filtered stats as opposed to SQL having one statistic that, let's say, had thousands and thousands of steps. With one statistic, SQL would have to read it on compilation, right? But with lots of little stats... The rule, remember, is because of interval subsumption. So just to explain. These are words that she makes up. I want you to know that, okay? <laughs> interval interval subsumption is not a real thing. I don't make enough to hear that. That's a good <laughs> word, though. If your queries, I will explain it I in know, easier I'm terms for you. <laughs> Thank God. All right. So if your where clause predicate is a subset of a single filter predicate, they can use a filtered index. If your where clause is like a list and that those values are in more than one filter, they won't use a filtered index, or a filtered stat for that matter. They won't use any filtered objects, okay? Because your predicates query is not a subset of a single filtered object. So my point is when your query runs, it has to go to one specific filtered object. One specific filtered object. One specific filtered object. So having lots of them really just gives different ranges and different breakoffs and different points of choice. So there is a little bit extra for them to determine which one to use, but they're still only going to use one. So having thousands and thousands wouldn't cause them to have to read all thousands and thousands to compile what would have been a multi-step statistic, right? Like a, a lot of steps. So not really. I mean, it, a little bit of extra CPU to determine which one to read, but really, no. I, I wouldn't go crazy, though, saying that. They're just, you don't want to waste IDs and statistics IDs with that. So I, I, there's not a lot of need, but it's not a big problem either. I usually like to have maybe 10 filtered objects for a data set, maybe up to 20, but much more than that is a little bit crazy. Is there an overhead on re-updating so a, a filtered object will only read the data that defines the filtered set, and if the filtered set is indexed, then there are things SQL can do to minimize the cost of the update. So if I had 20 filtered stats on an indexed column, SQL can read just the data set that applies to that filtered object, which would read 120th each time, so you'd get the same reads as kind of a full update. So no, there's, there's no extra there either. But isn't there, a problem, isn't there a problem with stats getting out of date, the filtered stats getting out of date, and not being able to update That's them That's the auto-updating. The auto-updating. So I would argue never, you guys, are, you guys are egging me on here, so I just I, want to- We are not, you we are not. <laughs> so, <laughs> These are additional questions. They've got the, so, <laughs> was a good question. Do you want me they to answer good, They were perfectly valid They're questions. Good questions. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> Auto-update auto, auto stats of filtered indexes. So anytime you have any filtered objects, good for you want to make sure that... <laughs> You want to make sure that you're manually updating those objects because auto-updating only updates by default without the trace flag. Auto-updating only updates when 20% of the columns changed. And if you had a lot of filtered objects, they might only be like, you know, one one-hundredth of the table, right? Or a very small subset. You don't want to wait for 20% of the table change for the statistic to get updated. So it's always better to manage any filtered objects updates 
manually rather than through auto updates. And what is that trace flag? Oh my God, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> it is trace flag 2371, and it takes the 20% at 25,000 rows and starts to drop it down so that it's, it's only, you know, 19%, 18%, so that if you're talking about a billion row table, it's only like 1% of the table which will trigger the update. And I'm not listening to them anymore. I'm going to the floor. Four <laughs> minutes, 20 seconds. You we have a winner. Not fair. Not fair at all. <laughs> Do you see what I have to live with? Yeah. He doesn't live with you, sir. My name is Casey Davis. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, majority of my servers, well, half of them are 2012. The other half are 2008 R2. We're licensed all the way up through 2014. And when 2016's licensing model comes out, we'll probably license them up to 2016. Uh, my company typically likes to wait until a good service pack is out for a release. Before yeah, because 2014 SP1 had no problems. Yes. 2012 SP1. 2012 SP1, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. There's a lot of additional features coming out in 2016 and a lot of features in 2014 that we currently are thinking about leveraging. Would you recommend upgrading to 2014 in order to futurely upgrade to 2016 or wait for 2016 and still wait for service pack 1 of 2016? I'd start prototyping and testing and learning 2016 now. I wouldn't even bother with 2014 unless you're almost there already. Okay. Um, and, and I'm not saying to go in production on a CTP. That would be crazy. But if you start prototyping and looking at the features that you want, then your migration from 2012 to 2016, I think, is a better strategy than 2014. But unfortunately for 2008 or 2008 R2, you cannot go directly to 2016 without putting it on 2012 or 2014 at least first. Easiest trick, back it up, restore it to 2012 or 2014, back it up, restore it to 2016. And I might be wrong, but you can tell me this, but, uh, or licensing, but enterprise eval of 2012 would be legal to do the backup restore the because backup you restore, would be yes. testing your restore yep. process. So as long as you don't go into production in that double hop kind of scenario, going from 2008 or 2008 R2 up to 2016, I think you can actually do that double hop cheaply by getting enterprise eval. You know, there's another angle to your question too, See, which is this SP1 yes. preference I was mindset. Say, it, it's, I think it's a fallacy now to say that you should wait to SP1. Well, you look it's, at, it's a conversation we're having all over Renas right. lately about, generally speaking, we're getting better quality software. Much better. And if you look at 2012 SP1 and 2014 SP1, they both had horrendous bugs on day one. Mm -hmm. Horrendous bugs. Right. Right. And so the SP1 won't save you. There's the no SP1's point. not going to save you just because it's SP1 and it's going to be better. It's okay. not necessarily any better than, the, than one of the CUs for an RTM. I, w I was looking at a more optimistic view of this, Paul, but I will go with your pessimistic view. Is, is this vendor applications, home, home written applications? Um, I would say two-thirds are in-house, one-third is vendor, and the vendor is currently on and testing 2014, our product being deployed on 2008 R2. And if I'm re remembering right, 2008 R2 mix 2012, is that yes. what you were saying? What are your compatibility levels of your databases? Uh, they've all been migrated to the version that, of SQL that are running. There's okay. no nice. backwards okay. compatible. Nice. Yeah. So just make sure that you're looking at deprecation. Yep. I would recommend using extended events and paying attention to what you may have a problem with, but then I would go with the suggestion, previous suggestion. Who invited Dad? Sounds like a really grown-up answer. Texas. Like, actually check all of the problems. No, latest bits. Bleeding edge. <laughs> oh, a question right here. Hi, I'm Ann Hills. I have a 
a one terabyte database and I checked compatibility levels and I was amazed to find some torn page page verify and uh -huh. uh, some SQL 2000 settings. And I thought, ooh, ah, I need to update this. I changed them all to checksum and my tempdb usage tripled. And we had some urgent, suddenly, space needs on my server. I was in with my sysadmins and they had to, you know, give me tons of space. Now we had Ola Hologren's scripts running and so it was, obviously we'd have to rebuild the index to put checksum on the pages and I knew that, but I couldn't believe it used triple tempdb. Um, I bet you had indexes that had never been rebuilt. If you did, you go out and proactively rebuild them to get the checksums on there. Yeah. So I bet you were in rebuilding more stuff than you'd ever rebuilt before. Perhaps larger tables than you'd ever built before, and that could have done it. Statistics. When statistics are built, they build a yep. work table, and then they they start to put the values that they see into that work table. Then they have to do something called step compression. So they, they do build a lot of work tables. So if you were rebuilding indexes, yep. that would be updating Stop, statistics with the equivalent of a full scan. Yep. So you'd be doing a lot more TempDB activity with those work tables. But those work tables don't get out of control because of step compression, but I could still see where if you were doing a lot of stuff in parallel potentially that that uh, could use TempDB. I bet it's with Ola Hollinger scripts you've got sort and TempDB turned on because it's oh. just so easy to do. Yep. Right. I bet that's... Yeah. I bet. And then, yeah. then the index rebuilds would have their work table for sorting in TempDB, which would all of a sudden blow up your TempDB needs. Yeah. Absolutely. Good one. It's, well, it's really, it's like the script behavior is the surprise, right? You don't necessarily uh -huh. know yeah, what yeah. the script's going to yeah. do. All right, another question. I'm Suren. Uh, if I uh, kill uh, DBCC, check DB in between, uh, what will happen? If you interrupt it? Yeah. Kill it. If you interrupt it, it just stops. If you interrupt TechDB, it doesn't give you any results. DBCC is, is perfect in every way. It is. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> it used to be. When it was yours. Yeah. Yes, there's been many bugs yes. since then. But we are told um, that we should not interrupt in between. It should complete. I'm not getting it. So I think the point here is you finish DBCC, CheckDB runs, and you, interrupt, you want to interrupt between the two. If you have some trouble in the production environment and user are not getting responses, but DBCC, he's saying ch ch that's CheckDB. Yeah, yeah. I'm running DBCC, CheckDB, because I have issue there. Right. And uh, I would complain from production that they are not getting response. So is it OK? I can kill that job or? Oh, I see. So let me, let me paraphrase. You're, you're running CheckDB, and somebody notices the extra resource hit, and it's slowing things down. Is it OK to kill CheckDB halfway through? Yes. It's not going to do any damage whatsoever. You're just not going to get any results. So then, let me over-answer your question and say what you should do then is not run CheckDB in production. Is take a backup, copy it somewhere else, restore it, which tests your backup works, run CheckDB on the restored copy. Right? And then if you don't have any problems, you know that the backup backed up a completely corruption-free database. If you do find some problems, then you don't really know whether it's the backup, the restored copy, or the prod system that has the problem. So if everything's good, then everything's good. Everything's good, then everything's good. And, and that's going to be the vast majority bad, of the time. All kinds of things could be right. bad. So offload your check to be checks. Now, there's some other stuff you should be looking at as well. Stop timing. Because ah, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> because there's, there's things that can make check to be run slowly. And there's things that can, can eat up a whole bunch of extra resources, right? So you can't really do very much about the resources, but the thing, the running slowly you can do. So uh, go to my blog, haha. Go to my blog and look for CheckDB, and uh, what would you look for? 
ChatDB speed or ChatDB slow, and you'll come up with a bunch of different blog posts that'll tell you about changing max degree of parallelism when you're running ChatDB. Uh, if you've got computed column indexes, that'll slow down ChatDB. If you've got, uh, if you don't have it constrained for memory grants, that can slow down ChatDB. So there's a bunch of different things you can do to try and make it run faster. I like it. Yeah. I did not win Just by two, any means. Two tidy minutes. Yes, thank two you. Two tidy minutes. I'm, I'm starting to build a bingo game in my head based on your last name, so we'll call it Rot. And it will be, you know, how many times can you plug your blog? How many times is a minute in excess? Every time is an answer in excess card. of two minutes. We've got to get how many those times do you say I wrote a white paper on that? <laughs> yes. There's a few scenarios that, yeah. that are repeating themes humble amongst this particular humble, crowd. Humble black. Humble brag. Hmm. We read you in just one sec, <laughs> sir. That word, Hi, my name's Sean. I'm from Washington State. Um, we awesome, got, so are we. We just got some. Uh, New machines for our SQL cluster. We're going to run it in a active failover setup. (laughs) 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 And uh, the new machines have SSDs local, Mm -hmm. and all the data and everything that we have right now is all out on the SAN. Sure. Is it a good, can we, and is it a good idea to move TempDB to the local SSDs? Yeah, so for a few different reasons, I want to preserve my expensive SAN to do just the hardest work of satisfying end user queries. The, the TempDB work that I don't really care about, churn that away locally on my solid state drives and keep the pipe free between my SQL server and the SAN. So that if I have to sort data, just let that thing happen locally and not clutter up the pipe back and forth to the SAN. Huge, wild fan of that. Love the technique. So, oh. yes. 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 <laughs> so, I'm, I'm not the you admin. You weren't timing me. I got away with that one. <laughs> I'm not the admin, but yeah. you know, how do you set that up in Hyper-V? Oh, Hyper-V. Oh. Oh, oh you that, didn't that, say oh, that. The, the bare metalers come out again. So with VMs, it's different, unfortunately. With VMs, you don't want to use local storage because as soon as I use local storage, that pins my VM to just one host. One of the coolest benefits of virtualization is if a host dies, my VM can just go anywhere automatically with no worries. There are third-party tools you can buy in order to leverage local solid state. I just wouldn't put that much money into TempDB. I would rather, if I'm going to virtualize, just leave it on the SAN. Yeah, but couldn't you simulate a SAN, connect, a SAN connection that actually mapped to a local drive store? The, so the VM just presumes that its destination will have one there as well? No, no, because uh, if unless I do some kind of manual manual scripting to present that drive yes. with the same drive letter and all of that, no. Yeah, yeah. but yet, that's what you'd have to do, is yeah. actually map that out. Yeah. And, and that if, really, you know, the whole point about VMs is being able to move fairly freely, so the right. fact that you're going to create configuration constraints. I mean, you've got them anyway if you're using LUNs. Yeah, but at least that's easy to move around from one host to another. Yeah. But, yeah, local This is stuff. a little trickier. Yeah. Yeah. It's just but not... not, not a, an, not a big enough issue you're willing to go bare metal because that's crazy talk. Wow, who has the money for that? <laughs> that's insane. But yeah, interesting problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I had a question back here. I'm here 35 oh, smoking fast. That's what they all call me. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be proud of that. Wait a minute. <laughs> Don Venardos from Los Angeles, California. Um, I'm interested in taking a look at the uh, Microsoft tape format for the backup because I have a backup which we've tried to restore 
yep. from from the customer, and it says that it's got an error on page zero zero. I said, well, something happened to the drive. Got another one. Same thing happened. Tried restoring it on multiple different computers. Nothing is funky about the file path or anything. I said, oh, well, send it back to them. Have them restore it. It has to be corrupted. Sent it back to them. They restored it. No problem. Oh. So I'm trying oh. to take a look I want to take a look and see what's in this you know page to see you know maybe something switched the byte orders or some weird kind of thing like that I bet money it's a third party backup software that they're naming the file dot back but it's like lightspeed idea sequel safe redgate sequel backup one of those tools yep. there are also third party tools like those that act as filter drivers and compress the file so that the, the people doing the backup may not even know that they're using one of those. Yeah, we had them go through the steps. What are you actually doing to back this up? And they were just using standard SQL commands. That's totally true. But with filter drivers and with the light speed, they can replace native commands. They can switch out the native commands completely. So what you want to do, the easiest way is going to add remove programs on the server and just look for every program on the box because it'll be an installed application. Ah, okay. If that's what it is. There may be other. However, if it's not that, if it truly is native SQL server backups, mm -hmm. right, using T-SQL, and it will restore here and not here, it's the copy from there to there that's screwing it up. Oh. Right, because there's absolutely nothing in SQL Server that's going to change what the backup's doing. Right, so something's corrupting it from here to here. It's much more likely it's what Brent says. Okay, but if you if you do want to look at the MTF format inside the backups, you can't. <laughs> it's it's a not documented. There's no details about it available, and there's no tool available to actually look at it. Apart from going in with a hex editor. But there is an important insight there that native commands can be replaced be underneath mm -hmm. by custom drivers from third-party product. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a nasty, evil trick, and they should be smacked. Yeah, the, 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 the native SQL Server stuff is always the safest way to take backups. Because there's, no there's nothing else you have to, to rely on apart from SQL Server. Right? You can also look at the modules going along with what Brent said to see what modules are loading up with SQL Server. Mm -hmm. And what I typically look for is yeah. anything that's not Microsoft that happens to be starting up with a SQL Server instance. And that'll help you validate some of what Brent was talking about. Oh, would those show oh, services? Oh, 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 um, Flash of brilliance. Uh-oh. Is the drive on the other side formatted with like a 4K sector? Hmm. Or are you going from 4K yeah. sector to 512 or 512 to 4K? Because one of those ways doesn't work. It could be that. What? Look at that. No, 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 oh. no. Drive sector size. Whoa. 512 bytes versus 4K. How is the drive formatted under the covers? SSDs, you can have a problem because the, the, log, the, the, the log can be remapped one way but not the other way. Is it a write order or something? No, it's just, to do with the, it's just the way that the log system works. So if I'm hearing you, Paul, what he needs to do is actually go look and see what the drive specifications are between the two drives and see if they are different. I mean, with any luck, they're the same, but if they're configured differently, yeah, and this that's is not, a risk. This is not an undocumented thing. This is a known thing, and there's error messages that come out right. when you're trying to attach a database to one thing, but there could be something funky there. Okay? That's just something else that I just thought of. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, you know, and there, it could be one... Could it have something to do with... Was there any encryption on the backup? Yes, who knows? No encryption on the backup. 
people like this this problem. We're all gnawing on it now. I like that's all, that's all a good thing, right? Just thinking through diagn- diagnosis is fun, right? Cool. Actually, trying to solve a problem. Sir, question. Yes. Hi, my, my name is Simon. I'm coming from Los Angeles. Yeah. First of all, about his uh, uh, question. Actually, I asked the same problem to the Bob Ward yesterday. And he said there is no walking around regarding about it's because he's adding the padding alignment something from like the four K to five twelve. Yes, yeah. so it's basically not working from smaller to the bigger, which is five twelve to the four K. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then he said uh, he going to look into detail, so you can send the email to the bar word. He'll be great. Uh, he'll yeah, that's cool because answer. it's not something that they fixed. It just doesn't work, right? I have one more question about the database auto deployment. Actually, for the what did you say? Wait, database what? Database deployment to the production automatically. Ooh, okay, yeah. So, are you familiar about uh, SQL package exe and then create the post deployment, post deployment and then compare the schema those kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So, I uh, I have a lot of challenge about post post de- deployment and then when I compare the SQL exe uh, SQL package to the another pro, uh, with the deckpack file to the production mm-hmm. server, it's sometimes making like ugly SQL uh, statement. So, have you ever seen uh, doing the consulting? Have you ever seen the other company is doing like really best practice or what kind of the uh, are they out there the challenge scenario or do you have any yeah recommendation to how can managing it? I, and so we chose to probably should probably answer. Do you, do you guys have anybody using backpacks? I don't. No. No. So there were a lot of what the problems that you describe are what I see everywhere. When you try to use them for automated deployments, they can be kind of disruptive. I know there are people doing it. You look at you shaking your head. Oh no. Okay. So I've never seen someone be successful with it with the backpack type approach. I'm sure they're out there. I just haven't seen anybody doing it. What I see people instead is doing tools like Redgate Schema Compare. You can script that really well. It has great PowerShell integration, so you can compare stuff really. What easy. about the Microsoft data tools? Yeah, there's, uh, Redgate. Hear, there's giggles around me. I don't have to listen to you guys. There's Redgate Schema Compare. Yes. <laughs> well, there's. I mean, to be honest, there is a tool that I've used that doesn't require any funds, and that's Table Diff, and that's. A little bit more unwieldy. No, no, that's what team, table diff does. Schemas? Oh it's no, I'm sorry, that's data. Is it just schemas that you're comparing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. There's Redgate schema compare. <laughs> I didn't think so. I don't think so. It might. Well, I don't think so. Okay. So you're saying backpacks don't work? There are challenges around deployments with backpacks, like backpacks isn't a table, on the list. <laughs> like if you've changed a table there have been awful things in the past I didn't stay current with it so I have no idea if this is fixed or not to the point where it will create a new database and pipe the data across or it will create new tables and pipe the data across when that is not the most efficient way to go and deploy your changes so schema upgrades if someone says I'm going to go add a table or I'm going to go add columns or drop columns I've seen instances where it just creates a new table and shoves all the data across that works great at five gigs. It kind of falls apart at 50. 
The thing I really worry about that with that approach is the transaction log volume is huge, you know, when I go through and do that. So it'll break database mirroring log shipping AGs just by pumping a huge amount of data through there when there are more targeted ways of making those changes. Six minutes and 30 seconds. And, and, Ooh, and, no, and I like the kids I'm actually not, doing research. Kidding, I wasn't timing so it. So it, it, it does like look it. like table, I always use it for data comparisons, but table div does have a schema it option. Does? It, wow. it there does. There you go. Learn something new every day. Something every That's day. On David's, it was on David's phone. You're surfing eBay. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have another question. If you guys have, you know, nod that one. And down. another thing about back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All six minutes is something of it. Your question. All right. This has to do with availability groups. Um, we're running 2014, and we have a primary and a non-readable secondary, and. I know that this is really bad, so don't judge. Um, October 5th, the quorum file share witness was deleted. And I know, don't judge. And it wasn't until like 15 days later that our primary didn't go down, but then all of a sudden it just wasn't the primary or the secondary. That was the error that we were getting. So I don't, do you have any insight of what you think may have happened? No, it's hard to tell without going through logs and seeing exactly what happened. Usually you shouldn't need the quorum except when there's cases of voting issues, but right. there could have been an issue where one of the nodes was not available temporarily or one node couldn't see the other. So yeah, could I imagine what happened? I can think of lots of where, ways where that would break, but just try not to touch those production servers and the yeah. quorum stuff. And <laughs> All right, thank you. You bet. And so the 15 days was just that you had a nice couple of weeks run before there was a debate. Right, exactly. Limped okay. along for a while to the next exit and then... So something happened, yeah. yeah. All right, so it's not like it's a magic number. No, no. Question here. Yes. I'm Jackie. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I also have an availability group question. We have a readable secondary that um, we primarily wanted to use as like... Don't judge either. <laughs> we have a lot of end users that do ad hoc querying. And um, we wanted to keep the primary for the applications that come through and the secondary for the ad hoc. And um, we started seeing that the ad hoc users that were running the queries on the secondary, they were running an extremely long time and they run really quick on the primary. Have you ever seen, and we have the same hardware, same memory, same everything like that. Yes. Yay, you got an answer? Yes, so uh, you can have different statistics between the primary and the secondary. Because whenever you, whenever SQL Server automatically creates statistics on the secondary, it's going to dump those into TempDB because it can't write into the database. It's a read-only database. So you can actually have different stats between the two. There are lots of other reasons, different SP configure settings, max, DOP, and so forth, but that just screams stats if you say everything is identical. The easy way is just look at the plans between the two and look at the cardinality estimation. How many rows did SQL Server expect to bring back? And uh, that'll start guiding you down that track. I'm not totally with you on this, only because for... I am, I agree. For anything <laughs> that's getting updated, on the secondary, yes. So it, it would have to be some query runs on the secondary, which is triggering SQL to update stats that aren't accurate on the primary. Doesn't so it create as well? It, it, it can create, yeah. it can do auto-create. So yeah. it's definitely interesting to look at stats, but it will be leveraging stats if they are accurate on the principal, yes. on the secondary. So I'm, I, I, not that I always want to stop people from picking on stats, but I, it, it is just something that I would look at. But 
It's not the only thing. I, I, but I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that the same hardware and everything else. I mean, what version of SQL are you looking 2014. at? 2014. Okay. So, looking, I mean, you would see sys.stats, you would see is temporary. I have another crazy idea. Okay. Unbelievable. Uh, so, what if they weren't running the query in the AG database? What if they were running it in another database that has a different cardinality estimator, so it has a different compat mode? If I had different compat modes in the ones, I would get a totally different plan. Oh, that's using interesting. The other that's, an interesting. that's an interesting one. So, uh, again, you could get it by looking at the plan load wow. to see. To that's see. almost I, as good I as my sector size thing like for that? the backups. Woo! That's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I, we, we just upgraded from 2005 two months ago uh -huh. to this server. So, yeah. And um, so everybody loves the fact that everything is so much faster because we've got more memory, more CPUs, more everything, plus it's 2014. But wait, when you upgraded from 2005, did you switch the compatibility we mode did. as well? We did, we did. So to 2014? Yes. They are, I, I believe, to the best of my knowledge, that all of the Ooh. databases that it are on matter. that server well, are on 2014 compatible. No, 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 not for you. No, 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 that's yeah. true. That, but I'm still intrigued by... You switched to 2014 and everyone's happy, which is fantastic. But, um, I, I suspect only there's because, some shiny new hardware. Uh, hold, hold on, no, I'm not. I'm not trying. Trip. They were running 2005 on the, old, on the new hardware. They probably I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah. I only mean that I've seen a lot of environments yes. where oh, yeah. people have migrated and changed their compat mode to 2014, and because they've spent so much time tuning and working with the old CE, moving to the new CE sometimes exposes problems in things that they haven't tuned and then things they have tuned change and so it makes some of those slower because you've put so much effort into tuning with the old CE. So I was just saying, I'm surprised that, that everything's faster and happier. But it is a good point that if you're doing anything cross-database, if you're running something from another database on the secondary, and that's not in 2012, or if that's not in 120, which is SQL 2014's compat mode, then you might be getting the old CE with the new stats and possibly having an I'll, issue. I'll check for sure. I, and I should... I should say 90% of our queries are running faster than 95, and there are a few that we're catching. And then we have to either, we find something really crazy, like they're doing a comparison on an integer field with a length with a string function, and that just seems to blow 2014's mind, where in 2005 it was not an issue. So, um, oh. so 95% is better. <laughs> Well, well, okay. well, with conversions, okay, though, with explicit yeah, conversions, right? Yeah. With explicit conversions. With explicit okay. conversions. Okay, okay. Yeah. The other, so now when you want to go to find out what the difference is, check out the new SQL Server Management Studio 2016. You can go get it today. It's free. I'm not saying you want to run 2016 in prod, but SSMS 2016 has this new capability to compare two execution plans and color code things that are different, just to get you quicker down the road. That's cool. Yeah, we'd be able to make it easier to compare plans because obviously yeah. the main thing is let's go look at the plans because they could be different. Yes. Yeah. Yep. You, you want to think they wouldn't be, but they could be. I bet they are. Yeah. yeah I bet All right. Are. Question right here. Hi, I'm Travis Cook from Louisville, Kentucky. Lower there. Okay. Uh, so we're finally doing a long-awaited upgrade from 2008. We're moving up. And in 2008, there was this wonderful functionality that developers seemed to take advantage of, where if you put things in a temp table in a certain order, they would stay that way when you selected back out from it, right? Uh, I, that's how I'm feeling at the moment, yes. So we're three months away from our migration, and somebody finally catches this on a report. 
that the reports are now screwed up because nobody put an order by in it. So we know how to fix it, put an order by in, right? But finding it in every case is a little more difficult. Is there a compatibility mode, a uh, trace flag? I, compatibility level didn't do it. Is there anything I can do to force it the old way so I don't push my migration? She's shaking her head. Okay. You're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> screwed. Wonderful. I got I think. I'll put that on my resume. Thanks. Is that a professional I, I assessment there? Any, anything at all, even undocumented, that will let you uh, find those? Oh. Hunt down unordered queries? Well, okay. I have an awful answer. So in user database, I don't know if you can do this in TempDB, and one of you guys probably knows. In user databases, you can have a DDL trigger that after a table is created, you can do something. This is a truly awful idea. <laughs> but what you could do is say, if a clustered index doesn't exist, go create it. And that will force an order on the temp table. I told you it was a bad idea. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if you can do that in a DDL in a trigger. Temp I don't know if you can I don't, do it in temp I don't know. Can you do it in a DDL trigger? Oh, yeah. I have a blog post on my That's site showing how to do it. Horrible. Ah, I have great <laughs> ideas. <laughs> He's so yes. excited about his evilness. Yes. Because I had a case for application. However, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the, the unfortunate thing is, even though that might help and force some algorithms to stay ordered, yeah. it won't necessarily force whatever algorithms were resulting in an ordered set before to stay ordered moving forward. A great example is group by. Group by used to produce a result set that was always ordered until 7.0, and when 7.0 came out, they added not just stream aggregation, but hash aggregates, and hash aggregates are not ordered. So, yeah. so you can't get around that except with an order by, is my point. So, and that is, you can't, you can't really even force hash or stream. Um, you, you can't force hash or stream with aggregates. I don't believe you can you, force join type, but that's not a hash aggregate. Even not, if you could, if you join the temp table, something else. Yeah, there's still there still might be something else that yeah. causes it. So, so yeah. I really back to my original answer. You're yeah. screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Uh, there right, are weird right. little things that could happen, like uh, some type of fragmentation, and now the data's not ordered, and yeah, so the, that strategy might work, but maybe not always. Right, because if Your you're doing a select to, star, it does an allocation order, order scan. Oh, yeah, oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. All right, a question over here. Hi, my name's uh, Mike Keating from Philadelphia. Question about, have you seen anyone using any of the uh, SQL server hardware appliances? And any thoughts on them? I haven't really done much, David. Nope. So the general, nope. the kinds of companies who buy those kinds of things tend to think of them literally as appliances, and so they don't tend to call in people like us. It's just this box in the corner. So I've seen companies do it that I just am not involved in those at all. Oh, yeah. If you're, so if you mean APS or PDW. Originally, we were looking at the database consolidation appliances. Yeah. Like, so HP sells like one. Like the HP. Yeah. And, right. No, it's because they, this just doesn't end up being in our wheelhouse. I'm sure they're sold. But Any it's idea? like Rolls Royces. I know they're out there. I just don't know anybody who has one. Okay. Any idea on best use cases for anything like that? No. No. You know, so it, I would, if you're looking for use cases, I'd go to the people who are trying to sell them to you. Otherwise, I've never recommended one. So you're not a fan, Brent? I'm not a fan because it comes with licensing. So, so it comes with its own SQL Server licensing. That kind of backs you into a corner. 
usually companies want to use the licensing they already have and then use the hardware that they want in combination with it. So if we go to the vendors and ask them for use cases, you expect us to believe the vendors. Okay. Yeah. Just, to, just making when sure you're I out heard at that the right. golf club, when you're out at the golf course with them, or the steak dinner that they're taking you to to try and get you to buy this thing, I'd say make a better use case, or you know, buy me buy me better steaks, and maybe I'll lie for you. But otherwise, it's a tough call. At least give me a give me a customer I could talk yeah. to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or a Rolls Royce. Rolls Royces yeah. are good. It's <laughs> remarkable how all that work. We'll be right back to you, sir. I think there's one right up at the front here. Uh, my name is Mutsumi from Toronto, Canada. Uh, we have about one terabyte SharePoint firm. It was a SQL 2012 in the back end. And so the, the data is so critical, the user wanted to have HADR. So we created always on with the synchronous replica and non-readable. Now, two years later, data has grown to two terabyte and we have about 2,000 uh, concurrent users. They started to complain that when log backup is running, uh, SQL becomes slow. And I saw that it was actually slow. So we're trying to offload the backup. So is it a good idea to offload the backup to uh, make a secondary readable so that we can run backup, or it's still synchronous, or should, should I create an asynchronous readable third uh, replica? I actually have a whole hour about this in my HADR workshop tomorrow, and so that's the first spoiler, that it's hard to give an answer quickly. Are you in that workshop by chance? Taking polls? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got good news and bad news. You will, you will love his workshop. You will not get the answer to your right. question. <laughs> the sh one of the short answers with it is, usually when it's mission critical, I want to make sure the log backups are current and very quick. And if I back up a secondary, they may not always be up to date if replication falls behind. So I got to build some brains into my log backup script to run it at somewhere where it's close up to date, but that it's also offloading from production. It is not a quick answer. No, and not a simple solution, obviously. No, no. Because obviously with SharePoint goes so well. I'll be right back with you, sir. Yeah, a question right here. It's, I wrote it for the first time based on Hi, my name is Alan Duncan. I'm from Chicago. I got a question about, uh, so I got a question about uh, uh, EMC DD Boost. We used to use Lightspeed and backup compression, and uh, now we're stuck with uh, native on DD Boost. Do you guys have any reservations for or against DD Boost? Uh, if you Google for or Bing, whatever, I support alternative lifestyles. Bingle? If, if, Bingle. Bingle. <laughs> if you search for uh, EMC data domain or just dedupe SQL server and my name, Brent Ozar, you're going to see a post that explains the, the headline. Bingo. Way. Bingo card, yep. <laughs> Cha-ching. Why dedupe is a bad idea for SQL server? Yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, and the biggest thing for me is just, I am now sending a giant backup across the wire, across the network wire, uncompressed. Newer versions of stuff like uh, data domain, though, will actually compress on the SQL server. So as long as you're paying attention to how those config switches work, it may not suck that bad. <laughs> but, but, but if you're looking at using dedupe for backups, don't. Because if you have, because the way it's going to work is you're going to have one giant backup file, one big backup file, which is the master. And then you have differences from the master. If you lose the master, all your backups are gone. Everything's delta. Everything's gone. It's all delta-based. You've got but, one single point of failure now. As we're coming to the last few minutes of this panel, having done a few of these, I want to thank all of you 
for putting up your hands in tight clusters so I've not had to run back and forth. Near as much. <laughs> it's, I'm really appreciating that. I'm enjoying it a lot, actually. Sir, you had a question. Um, no one's actually mentioned the word Azure in a while, so I figured I'd throw this out there. Um, for the different um, performance tiers, the standard and premium, the, the DTUs, are the DTUs actually the same? Or do you are the get DTUs the same between, between, the, between like standard and premium? A DTU is going to be a blend of CPU, memory, an I.O., and it's going to be based on the workload on that server. So you are comparing of resources on that server. But so I, you really want to go to the catalog views and look at that situation. Once you move up to like S0 to like S3, then you need to recalculate where you are there is, to well, make the decision of where it... Right. Is a, like a S3 100, would that be the same as a premium 100? Say that one more time. Like the S3 has 100? Or you can have DTU. S3 up to 100 DTUs? And the premium, well, before, had 100 DTUs. So are the 100 DTUs they are going to give you the same performance? I would have to look that up. I would have to look into that. But it's relative to where you're at. And when you start seeing the performance maxing out, you can break out, am I suffering via CPU memory I.O.? And that gives you the idea of what's pushing the DTU. Then you can start trying to performance tune at that level. Now, what you can start looking at is if, you, if your workloads are very, are very spiky and, and unpredictable, then you may want to look at elastic scale to help you temporarily. Or you can, if it's, if it's predictable, you can do, do a scheduled solution. But again, you're almost throwing hardware at it by saying, let me go, let me go to a premium level. What I'm going to recommend that you do is use DTUs, look for a pattern, What's beautiful now is most of our DMVs, we've, I mean, it's, the lines are really great at this point. Now it, I'm actually having trouble finding what won't work. So system exec requests, historical data, catalog data, all that stuff is available to you. Throw that to like a Power BI dashboard, start looking for trends. And then once you find those trends, start nailing those guys. But I can't, I can't say specifically that your DTU metrics at one level are going to exactly correlate when you make do an upgrade or down even downgrade. Okay. All right, another question. Hi, my name is Craig. I'm from British Columbia. Um, I want to thank you guys. Uh, you guys, the, the sessions I've been to have made this um, conference pay for itself already. It, it's cool. been great. Thank you. Um, well, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to sit in my sessions and you only sat in the hall. <laughs> um, we uh, had a consultant come in earlier this year who does uh, stuff about 10 times as much as what we do. and We're, we're recording uh, positions for vehicles. And so we get a ton of data coming in. They're just due 10 times the volume. And uh, we're just looking at performance. And I think you guys have helped a lot already in this, in, in, in this conference. But one of the strategies he suggested, um, we've got a table where all this data goes into, and he said uh, you could create a table for the last 30 days and a table for the last uh, record so that you don't have to query for that because we're talking about millions of millions and millions, millions of records uh, with all the different vehicles 
combined. And uh, this is what they do, and they get lots of performance. Um, Brent talked about partition views, which blew my mind today. And I'm just wondering, is that a, a strategy you would suggest, or do you have other strategies that you might suggest for getting the last record, the last 30 days worth of records? Well, okay, you're combining a couple of things here with partition views as well as certain result sets that you know that you're going to commonly want and, and pre-aggregating, pre-storing, or periodically updating and having something that's slightly stale but maybe not very stale or even something that's updated when the data updates, so kind of a push as opposed to a pull. I mean, there's lots of strategies of kind of certain metrics that you commonly want store over here, kind of off in the corner, indexed, accessible, but then, of course, you have to know to go there to get them. And that can be fantastic for last, max, and so forth. Now, the other kind of separate concept in a large table scenario and, and we might have to start the timer on this one, but in a VLT, a very large table scenario, when you have current data like 2015, along with 2014, 2013, 2012, I am a fan very often of separating those large tables into separate physical tables, using constraints, trusted constraints to be even more specific, creating the right keys and indexes to support updatable partitioned views, and then isolating those data sets so that I can index them. I mean, some of the benefits are things like 2014 could even have column store indexes against 2015, which is OLTP, which you can't use column store in read-write until 2014, but then you have limits on indexes. So I don't know what version, but my point is separating that out into separate tables gives you a tremendous number of benefits from an indexing and performance perspective and a statistics perspective. Because even in 2014, even with incremental stats, which does help updates for partition tables statistics, it doesn't help accuracy of partition tables statistics because statistics are always table level, whether it's partitioned or not. So the limit of 200 steps can start to become problematic for estimation. So simply put, breaking it into separate tables gives you a tremendous... I am only touching on the surface of the benefits Tell it gives. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> so so We've my the point... we started since you started speaking. Oh, shut up. <laughs> All right. So the, the benefit... <laughs> There are a tremendous number of benefits, and they, they're slowly fixing some of them version to version, but there are still even some things that you can't do really, really well unless you have separate physical tables. There's okay, lots so, of benefits to having those separate physical tables. Say that again. You, lots of benefits to having separate physical tables. Especially With a partition view like that. over that, yeah. Absolutely. All right, uh, we're about out of time. We have one last question. Hi, Mike Keating again. Um, we're thinking about switching to data protection manager and we're also using like all the hologram scripts for that and so I'm not sure if you know of any gotchas where if we split the backups out to data protection manager or integrate, I don't, I don't know what our options are. Be afraid. Do you know the Be afraid. So did, I, the I, last time I looked at DPM, right. it was a 15, 15 minute minutes. granularity, like you couldn't back up more often than 15 minutes. That has been, honestly, it was like 2007. It has been a long time since I looked at DVM. Yeah. It's been so long since I've looked. Right. Yeah. I, that would be All the of first us were very disappointed with older versions. None of us have looked at it. So there's lots of love recently. at the front of the room for DPM. Yeah. No. I love but the idea. Clearly, they're I old I love the scars. idea. They're not new Just scars. Just not the actual right. implementation. Yeah. Okay. Evaluate Sorry. carefully. 
folks, that's all the time we've got. A big hand for our panel of troublemakers. <laughs> And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.